Hey, Kev, it's time to record a new Smodcast. Fuck off. I'm listening to one of the other great shows on the Smodcast podcast network. Scott? There's so many to choose from. Tune into Hollywood Babylon with me and Ralph Garman. Blowhard on Wednesdays, the show that's all about sucking cock. There's so many to choose from. Or tune into Jay and Silent Bob Get Old on Thursdays, Scott, and listen to Muse's battle with drug addiction. And Fridays is always Brian, Walter, Brian, tell him Steve, Dave. There's so many to choose from. And even on the weekends, we got shit going on, bitch, aside from our show, which is on Sunday night. On Saturdays, you can watch Highlands of People History or Live from Smodcastle, which is a highlight reel of like some of the best stuff that we do at our theater. So why the fuck are people just listening to this show? There's so many to choose from. Smodcast.com. It's all free. It's all funny. Smonsters of talk. There's so many to choose from. All good? No worries, man. Don't act like that in front of people people (laughs) are gonna start thinking i hit you or something (laughs) um after a little technical difficulty we're back hi everybody welcome to uh the red state of the union episode two my name is kevin smith i directed uh, red state to my left is my uh, producer and good friend john gordon he produced it everybody give him a round of applause his first time here Um, following up, uh, after last week's kind of, we showed the teaser for the first time and then sat around and talked to a bunch of people about it. Um, today we're going to show you a little bit more, uh, something else just to set it up for you. Uh, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with, uh, the flick, uh, it, the story is, is essentially like one of those kids go to have sex, kids get punished horror films. We use the very same trope of the, of the classic uh, 80s horror movie and then kind of go a different way with it. So this is about 15 minutes, I would say, um, into the movie. Uh, and, and, and we'll check it out. It's a few, only a few minutes long. Uh, but we'll get a feel for the, what we're going for, the tone, and we'll talk about it afterwards. Um, as I talked about on the previous podcast, it's a very low tech operation here. So the, what you're going to see is not pristine or crystal clear by any stretch of the imagination. We're literally projecting off of a laptop a quick time. We just took a big quick time folder and blew it up for the screen. Um, but surprisingly, it actually works very well. We're going to jump up there. Once I'm up there, I'll give you the hi ho and we can kick back, watch it. And then afterwards, John and I will come down here and talk to y'all. So hang tight. I'll cherish the old rugged cross. 
just want to hear you. Can somebody please let me out of here? Please? Hey, you fucking bitch, let me fuck out of here, you fucking bitch! It's lovely. Um, oh, so that was uh, what you saw and heard was Kyle Gallner, uh, an actor a lot of people seem to know. I guess he was in the uh, most recent uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I know him as, as Beaver in Veronica Mars. Um, and then, of course, uh, at the end, you got to see Melissa Leo there as well. And then at the very, very end, we gave you just a little shot of our our lead guy, Michael Parks, who plays uh, Aben Cooper. Got any thoughts? Or you're like, good job, Kev, fuck off. <laughs> Anybody? Good job. Thanks, uh, Thanks I, man. That's all I <laughs> wanted, really. So thank you and good night. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I don't know how much I should describe. Uh, you, know, you can talk about it. I can, I'll be judicious in the editing if I have to. <laughs> okay. I, I like the fact that it was a very claustrophobic uh, feel very mm. uh, suspenseful, and wasn't really expecting what I what I saw. So it really added to the creepiness of it. So I could see a whole film like that totally working. Absolutely. Right on, right on, sir. The oh, pardon me, sorry. Um, the the mood that you created in that scene, and I imagine it kind of it continues into the next scene. Is is that the mood for the whole film? Very much the whole time. Uh, it's tension all the way through. Um, it went from the moment we start, we just kind of suck you in and just keep you there the whole time. And I think we've managed to, to kind of maintain it for as long as we can or sustain it for as long as we can. But it is a definite 45 minute stretch of just bleak, you know, and that's, that's kind of indicative. That's the beginning of it. What follows this is Michael Parks as Aben Cooper goes into like a, awesome sermon i mean it's a horrible sermon but his his delivery is spellbinding yeah good job it really Thanks, is it, it, i really would love to see that yeah good man i like that i'm gonna put that on a poster i would really love to see that <laughs> dude it's mod castle <laughs> that as well yeah that means a lot creepy okay good enough that's what we're going for be bad if it was Jersey Girl and you were like creepy, <laughs> which I did hear quite a bit of back in the day. Um, the gentleman to, uh, to my left, as I said before, John Gordon has been working with me since, oh shit, back in Clerks, since the very beginning. When I met John, John was Harvey Weinstein's assistant at Miramax. And, uh, Mark Tusk, as I've talked about, I think on the Clerks DVD, Mark Tusk was an acquisitions agent at Miramax. Very, uh, important in the story. He's the guy that like really kind of hounded Harvey about it and whatnot. Um, but Harvey, as we talked about in that story, saw 20 minutes and walked out of the movie and shit. He was like, this movie's crap. And off he went. And, uh, that was our, that was the guy that was, we wanted to be at Miramax. So he was up at Sundance, um, and we had our last screening coming up at the Egyptian theater. And John was Harvey's assistant, as I said at that point. And Harvey was in Sundance. He had been in Sundance. He got into it. Somebody scared him 
at, uh, at the Stein Erickson Lodge. Some writer came up to him, harassed him in public and shit, and he got spooked and took off, left Sundance. And I think all the filmmakers at Sundance that year had that guy who scared Harvey killed because there our hope went out the door and shit. But then Harvey nutted up, came back and shit, and John was with him. And he's just like, oh, what's good? What should I be looking at? I don't, I don't want to know. Uh, what should I be seeing? And John was just like, you know, the movie that I liked that spoke to me was Clerks, man. I think a lot of people my age kind of dig on it and whatnot. So he was like, all right, I'll watch fucking Clerks. And he went and watched the movie and fell in love with it. Once he got past the fucking 15 minutes, he couldn't stand and um and then uh, the rest was kind of history for us so john without john i wouldn't be standing here in front of you talking at all um and has been john has been with us every step of the way from clerks uh mall rats he wasn't with us on because we went to universal for that but john was instrumental in bringing us back to miramax he's the guy that set up our overall deal there which allowed us to make chasing amy and everything forward so john's been around for a long long time and this was a script that we couldn't, I couldn't get finance. It took me a while. Nobody wanted to give me any cash for it. People were just like, it's awfully creepy, as you say. You know, it's just like, there's nothing really funny about the movie. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's not a comedy. It's a horror movie. And nobody wants to hear, like, you know, the, the guy who makes comedy saying, like, I'm going to try something new, horror. Um, although most people would be like, you did horror, and it was Jersey Girl. And I'm like, stop saying that joke. <laughs> Um, but, uh, it was tough we could, and for years and years we did not find money. And I, you know, I've got people in my life, representatives who've been telling me for years, like, Hey man, if you ever wanted to go indie and like raise some money to go shoot a movie, man, I get your shit financed in a fucking heartbeat, man. Cause you're Kevin Smith, you're a bomb and shit. The moment literally came when I was like, I need that, that money you were talking about, the reserve money can't find any for fucking red state. So where are these people that'll give me money? And they're like, Oh, not for this, you know, should have Jane Silent Bob in it. So this didn't, it was tough. We couldn't find the cash. This motherfucker to my left found the cash. Without this guy, we don't make Red State. And trust me, it was a very important thing that we made Red State. So that's just a little bit of uh, who he is and whatnot. And then I'm going to chit-chat with him for a second. If you give me that spare mic, pass him this. And uh, we'll get to know old John. Um, well, I'm locked in. There you go. Um, what was it like, man, working for a fucking legend like Harvey Weinstein? Um, you know, I didn't really think about it that much when I was doing it because it was just, that's all I knew. I started working for him when I was, <clears throat> well, I started working at the company when I was like 19 or 20 mm. and I was just interning there and it was, you know, 25 people at the company and he was just the guy who was always running down the hallways and screaming at people and I was just trying to hide and not be seen by him. And then um, uh, there was an opening to work as his assistant, and I was terrified, but there were no jobs at the time, so I took it. And he, um, it's one of those things where I think it's like if you, uh, like if you live in a place where like it's really polluted and the air is really toxic to breathe, and after like five minutes you're like, oh, I guess I can breathe here. It's fine. Um, so you just you you acclimated to it really quickly. But um, what I realized afterwards. After I left there, because like when I was there, I don't think I realized how much I learned from them. Right. And um, you realize how much he ju he's just he's one of these guys who, you know, you would see being there working for him. Like mostly other companies, like people have certain jobs at a company like you do. You do marketing and you do publicity and you do production and you do development and you do finance and you do distribution. And 
working for Harvey, you would come in and he would ask you a question about distribution. You say, well, I don't know. I don't do that. I do marketing. That guy does distribution. And he would just never take that as an acceptable answer. He's like, no, you have to know everything. Mm. Like you can't work in this business and say, well, I only do this. Cause then you don't really work in the business. You don't know anything about movies if you don't do it. So he, he kind of, he kind of teaches you really early on that if you want to do it, then you have to, doesn't matter if you love every part of it, but you have to know it and understand it because sooner or later you're going to meet somebody who does know all those things and you're not going to be able to make the kind of movies that he wanted to make and put out there um, and not be able to, you know, to, to do that. It's a really hard job because, you know, we've talked about this a lot before. It's That was a company that was started and they didn't make all those movies work because they had tons of money to spend and, you know, and every luxury available to them. It was always like they had to get people talking about the movies, whether it was the press or the audiences or, um, you know, the media and TV shows. And so it was. They didn't go traditional. They never bought their openings. Never. Like any time you ever saw Miramax have a really strong opening before pre-Disney and even in the early days of the Disney buy they never bought their opening. They no. they literally found creative ways to to market and whatnot, and and that was kind of a point of pride. Um, and it's the mentality that we were raised in, you know, to to some weird degree. I mean, if you consider Harvey as we do a parent figure of sorts, we were raised to believe that like it was almost like the George Costanza. Like, why would you pay for sex or parking? If you drive around long enough, you'll find a spot. Right. Same kind of thing here. It's like, why would you, why would you like just spend a bunch of money to make a bunch of money? That doesn't make sense. You know, there's creative ways around it. Um, but what was the, you were there for like legendary shit, man. You were there for even before I was. And then you came, uh, and, and you stayed for a long, long time. Then you went off to run Universal for a while, but you were there for like Pulp Fiction. You were there for Crying Game. What year did you start? I started in, well, I was interning there. 1990, I think it was. So it was right after Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And then I left in 2005, which was like duplex. So it was, so it was a really honorable you were way like, to is go this, out. Is this Miramax? You're looking at the door and shit. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it was, you know, it was a great time to be there. Because, like, even at the time when I was there, when I, like, when I was his assistant, you know, I remember like seeing like this file in his file cabinet for a movie called The Soldier's Wife. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like working because like, you know, I loved like all kinds of movies, but I was like, oh, The Soldier's Wife, it's going to be some sleepy art house movie. And that was The Crying Game. And it was just all this really exciting stuff that was happening at the same time because I, you know, because Disney bought the company right after that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, your, your initial reaction would be like, well, now they sold out. They sold out to this company. And basically, you know, everything that they did after that was now we have money and we're going to do things our way. Mm-hmm. And Disney was this parent company who was constantly on top of them all the time saying, you know, you can't make a movie. Pe-. You know, we, we went from not being able to make movies ever. We were an acquisition-based company mm-hmm. to all of a sudden having money to make films. And there was like an $8 million budget cap on movies. But then Harvey would find something he wanted to make. It was $10 million. And he'd just make it. There was never this process of you thought you were at a place where they'd have to go and then get approvals. They would just do it and then deal with the consequences later. Mm. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of like thumb their their noses in anyone's faces. It was just like they knew that in order to kind of raise the bar, they'd have to do things a certain way. And that would mean not playing the rules of the of the kind of establishment that bought them. They're, they're big. They play it personally. That's what was always beautiful about being there is good or bad. 
uh, the movies, they treated each one so personally. It was almost like a chip on your shoulder going in there, like, we'll show these fucking people that we can do this not, you know, against the grain, do it the not normal way or something like that. You started as, a, as an assistant, but you eventually, when you left Miramax, what was your title? I was a co-president of production. And then from there, so how many of you were there from 90 to what year did you leave? Uh, 2005. So 15 years, and then you went over and fucking ran a studio. So you got to work indie side and then studio side. I went to Universal after I left Miramax. And all of a sudden, I like went to this place where like people were paid properly, and everyone was really nice to each other, and there were, you know, nobody was screaming at each other. I mean, Miramax for... for you know, it was a, it was this kind of environment. I shouldn't say the people there, but like Harvey and Bob were, you know, they were passion players, but you know, they wanted things done a certain way and they were not shy about, about telling. <laughs> That's people. all code for they were right. screamers. <laughs> <laughs> they were screamers. And then, you know, I went to this place, which was really civil and really nice and, and, and very quickly realized after that, that, um, all of the stuff that made Miramax really great. For the great part, when we were there, like, you know, when the great movies were getting made, like, that was kind of gone. The passion was gone. Right. Like, everyone was kind of collecting a paycheck. There was no ownership in the company. I'm sure there were people there that had the stock options and, and those kind of things, but there was no ownership in the movies. Everything was being done to service a bottom line. And if that's what Harvey and Bob were doing, you didn't know it. Like, they right. actually would go out there... Like what you were saying before, which was like this point of pride, which was with Harvey and Bob, the thing that you could say to them that would make them motivated was, you can't do this. And at the studios, you can't do this was, okay, next, let's move on to the next thing. They, like it was they, really... It stops there. They're just like, we can't do it, yeah. so let's not try. And because you're dealing with a, a um, you know, Harvey and Bob or the buck stop with them is very clear. You could go to them and say, I want to make this movie. How much does it cost? Ten. Okay, I'll give you eight. Now, that to me was the norm for how movies got made until I got to a company or whereas 20 people coming into a room and looking at numbers and everybody have to justify why something was going to get made. And basically, there was no one person or one personality or one even mandate of a kind of movie that you were making that was defining the place. It was, what can we make that justifies these numbers on a piece of paper? So it's kind of passionless. And, and it's not to say there weren't really great filmmakers working there or people who liked movies, but... You're doing it for a different reason. And, it's and a business. The there, business. It's, I mean, I went through a little bit with, uh, well, a lot of it on, on uh, Cop Out with Warner Brothers. Like, we went in, nobody went in going, like, this is a film that's going to explain in searing, uncompromising terms the human condition. You know what I'm saying? Like, we knew what we were making going in. And it's the reason it got made that they even greenlit it. Um, number one is because the budget got, we got the budget really low. But number two, because they're like, we know exactly what to do with this when you're done with it. That's what they want, the easy pre-sell, where they could just go, okay, we know how to put this poster together. We know how to take it to this many different marketplaces. We know how many spots to put on. Um, and it's great. It's great when you got a recipe in place and you, you've cracked the code and you know what you're doing and stuff. But there is just that essential element missing, that one little particle that just allows you to kind of, uh, it sounds stupid as hell, but that's where the magic comes in, yeah. that kind of thing. Having done that side, having done the Miramax side, and and then having done the studio side, um, this was uh, the first flick that you did in a little while, and it was the cheapest flick you've probably been involved with in eons. What was what? I know you. I'm, I'm not going to even lead you in terms of like, oh, did you enjoy the process? I, it was like watching you get born again, in in a weird way. You you really enjoy the process. 
Um, what about it made it better for you this time around? Like what, what, cause I loved it too. It was my favorite shoot. What made it different? I decided to become, or decided, the decision was kind of made for me, but I'd, I'd become an independent producer, whatever that means, mm. in 2007, which is probably the worst time to become an independent producer because, you know, the world just basically fell apart. And, and I did a movie for, for DreamWorks, and they were, you know, it was a nice place to work, and I was hired to do it. And, but, you know, it got harder and harder to do. Like, when I, when I got into the business, it was to make, you know, movies I loved. You know, work with filmmakers I love and... and and basically got to do it. You know, the, the Miramax was, you know, and I think you had that thing too, is you'd give Harvey script and he made the movie and then realize like that doesn't happen anywhere else in the business. Yeah. Anywhere else. It's, you know, it's kind of It's amazing. the one place that you could, you only had to wait for an answer from one of two people. Right. That's it. Like the buck literally stopped at the top and it wasn't a bunch of people under him or a bunch of executives going like, we speak for the one you'll never see. Right. Like you literally saw him. And he would say, yeah, I'm into this. Let's fucking do it. Or he'd be like, you're an idiot. Why would you do this? You know, right. and you're like, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll never do it again. Right. But at least it was an answer and it was to your face. It was no fucking But bullshit. even when he called you an idiot, you could justify it and be like, okay, do it. Um, but, um, but yeah, but then, so doing this was, so when we, before we started doing, because this was like, it was a, I mean, the amazing thing was like the shoot was 25 days. Mm -hmm. You basically cut it in that many days. And so it was this five week period where it seemed like everything was so fast, but there was like, almost three years trying to find the money to put this movie together. Right. And it was just days of, you know, putting the money together. wasn't like, you know, even the putting the money together part when we finally had it was painful, but it was a much shorter period of time of just dealing with people saying no every day. No, no, There was no. so much no on this movie everywhere we went with it. People that we thought were like, okay, man, they, they do risky shit. Let's go over here. And they were like, uh, I don't know what you can do with this. Yeah. What is it? There was and a lot no of what bad. is it. There was no as bad. And there were some people who just didn't answer. Yeah. Because it was like they didn't even have the time to say no. And it was amazing because it's like you, you just get to this point where you're like, why am I doing it? Mm. But then when we finally got to the point of, of making the movie and we did find, you know, we found two really great financiers who kind of stepped up and, you know, parted with, you know, a lot of money. Not for, to making a movie, it's not a lot of money. But right. for any, you know, for anybody bit, else, yeah. it's, a, it's a lot of money. Um, and basically said, go make the movie you want to make. Like they didn't, once we started making the movie, we never heard from them at all. They didn't say and anything so there was about no, cast or anything. There nothing. was no like, you should go after these people. Nothing. Cause normally when you make movies, even independent movies, you're like, who can we cast in this movie who's going to be exciting in France so we can get more money from our foreign distributors? Cause what you'll do is you'll go out there and say, okay, to finance this movie, we'll go figure out how we're going to sell it in all these foreign territories. And that'll give us a certain amount of money. And then we'll just have to find the balance and make, make the movie. Here, there was no, we didn't even have to do that. Like we haven't even sold to any foreign territories on the movie. We just got to get the money, cast who we wanted to cast in the movie, crew the film up with the people we wanted to crew it up with, and then go make it. So, so a lot of the times you just come to work every day and be like, is there nobody I have to check with to do this? Like, yeah. you want to go shoot this this way? And, and I'm so conditioned to having to let somebody know something. And not so much on the Miramax side, but the studios. It's like I worked on a movie once for a studio and you'd get like wardrobe tests. They'd actually have like not even the lead, like the supporting character in like three different costumes. And like four producers and two studios and one financier all have to sign off on it. And of course, all of them have different opinions. And they're all based on personal taste, not what's right for the movie. It's just right. like, I don't like pink. They're like, but I don't know. <laughs> and so the time and the money that's wasted on this movie, you just be like, 
you know, the, the thing that was really great was for, for both the cast and the crew was that Kevin would basically say to people, I, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. Just do it. And that was new for me. That was, I didn't, I've never been that guy because I was the guy that was like, you do it like, you give me it, I'll do it. No, it was new for everyone. It, it was, was so good. Who knew? Who knew to crack the code? You just, I just had to get even lazier. And then, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just dial it back to like, I'm just going to lay here. You do it. You know, I can't. Give me my reaching <laughs> stick. And when you let people go, they'll, they'll, they've, I, for some reason, and it wasn't an experiment. It wasn't like, let's see if we can outfox these people. It was literally like me going, well, you're here for that. Like, we brought you here because you're supposed to be great at this. So do it. Go ahead. And you give people room, and boy, they go crazy. They go crazy. But the first reaction you get from people, which is really funny, because you're dealing with, like, I think everybody in this business gets so frustrated because they probably spend all their time presenting their ideas to these nameless and faceless groups of people who say no. And then they go home and the bitch and they're like, you know what I do? I'm a production designer for a living. Why are they telling me what color the walls should be and all this stuff? And then you finally say to that person, just do what you want. You know how to do the job. And they're like, is he serious? Yes. Should I do that? I mean, I want to paint the wall this color. And you're conditioned to... You're there's conditioned a fear. To, there's a moment. There's a hesitancy. It's like when there was one Thanksgiving um, where me and Jim were like, what do you do with the turkey carcass? And instead of like stripping the meat, we just looked at the dogs. We were like, fuck it. And we threw the pan... <laughs> Uh, we took it out in the driveway and threw this fucking, and there was a lot of turkey on this big hunk of, like, any dogs would go crazy, and if, including our dogs, big eaters. But because we were like, here, man, and we just stood there, they literally looked at us like, what's the game? You know what I'm right. saying? Like, they really, they're like, oh, no, 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 there's no gas, grass, or ass. Somebody's getting fucked here. Like, what? Right. what's this all about? We're like, eat it. It's for you. So you're staring, Scully! Yeah, <laughs> they're waiting for the fucking right. hand at them and shit. It's the same thing. Like, when you talk to somebody, like, what do you, why don't you do? What would you do? And they're like, well, I mean, I, I will do whatever you want to do. It's like, no, no, what would you do if I wasn't here? And they're like, I wouldn't have this job. I'm like, just come, <laughs> go with me on this, man. And, and left, people left to their own devices. The movie got so much better than it would have been if I was just like, everyone do everything that I said because I had this vision for this thing three, four fucking years ago when I wrote it that it's so clear that I'm taking it forward right to this day and we're reenacting everything I saw in my head four years ago. It was so much easier to just be like, you do it, man. And then people thrived. Like, that was the crazy thing. We came, like, a second night of shooting, I remember walking around, like, first of all, you couldn't tell the difference. Like, if somebody said to me, just like, as in a, you know, having you, like, oh, you've worked in the business for a while, like, walk onto the set, well, how big do you think this movie is? I had no idea. I would have said, this is a $20 million movie. Yeah. But what happened was, to people, was like, everyone, under the harshest of circumstances, I mean, there were literally people who were bitching about Bitching in a nice way, meaning like, I don't know how I'm going to do what you want me to do for the budget that I have to make it for. Who, after that first or second day, were th like thriving. Like, it was amazing. Like, we're doing stuff, we're doing things that were so incredible because once you took away all of the bullshit of, you know, 95 different people telling you what to do, and you, and you got over the hump of, well, we don't have enough money to make this movie. All the mm -hmm. things that you're conditioned to like be like, how are we going to make it done? People just made stuff happen. Like every day you would walk in because there wasn't this pressure of, of, of you know, worrying that Kevin was going to say like, well, that's not what I wanted because what he wanted was what they were going to bring. And they yeah. brought, and everyone brought it. And, and, and in this incredible way, it all came together. 
And um, even in the, you know, when we had like, you know, we had days that were really hard on the movie and nobody complained. There was like, there was no one who ever gave me the impression that they were like, I just want this movie to be over. Yeah. It was quite the opposite. Most people were just like, it sucks that we're coming to an end. I, you know, it's, you figure out pretty quickly, well, it didn't quickly, I guess it took almost 20 years to figure out that the world is so full of fucking people who are like, why? Why would you do that? Why? Why? You just want a bunch of people who are like, why not? Give it a shot. You're like, I want to do something. Like, why not? All right, let's cry. Let's try. Might not work, but let's fucking give it. Beach sitting around pointing at him being, why? You know, let's give it a shot. And that's what we did on this flick. And in the coming weeks, you'll, you'll kind of see. So every week we'll be doing this and showing you more and more and more. Thanks for coming out and listening to us talk and watching whatnot. And uh, we'll see you next week on Red State of the Union. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Find more funny shit like this at smodcast.com.